Okay, well last week uh, we looked at having a thankful heart at all times. And I think it proved to be a very timely and important message considering the situation that happened with Brother Kevin. And we're thankful he's safely with us. And we'll continue in prayer. And I hope to, after the teaching, to have a time of prayer for, for him, for his situations he's still enduring there. So we talked about having a thankful heart at all times. <clears throat> and we looked at some examples in Scripture. People had a thankful heart in time of affliction. What were some of the people we talked about? Jenna? Job. Job. Man, what happened to Job? He lost everything. Even to the point where his wife said, Curse God and die. Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came from my Lord's womb, naked I shall return. No matter what the Lord either brings or allows in our lives, we have no reason but to be thankful. No reason to be unthankful. Now, we talked about being thankful for things that we sometimes take for granted. Uh, things that other people are thankful for every single day because they can't take them for granted. Because they don't get it every day. Like food and warmth during the winter season. Clean water. Medical care. I mean, if what happened this past week would have happened somewhere where there was no medical care, who knows what would have happened? I mean, the Lord can do whatever He wants, of course. He can heal. But we're to be thankful in all things. In affliction. And when the Lord allows something to happen in our lives, we're to be watchful. Because chances are, He's trying to do something through us. He's going to bring people across our path we never would have met otherwise. Uh, yesterday I was playing soccer. This seems kind of trivial considering some of the people's situation. I was playing soccer yesterday and sprained my ankle for about the millionth time in my life. And uh, I just was mad because I was just so tired of spraining my ankle. But when I, 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 me and Malachi had decided to go uh, do some grocery shopping before we went home and pick up some things. And there's a lady who got to see me. I even forgot I had my, my repent or pair of shirt on. And this lady was, was touched by that. And I would have never seen her otherwise. She left right, at, right before I left the store. So when things, bad things happen, we need to be aware and say, what is the Lord trying to do here? What is the Lord going to do through, my, through what happened here? Because he's going to bring us into contact with people who we never would have been in contact with otherwise. Probably Kevin went to a, a, a nurse this past weekend while he was in the hospital. He never would have met her otherwise. And so we need to be aware of these things and be thankful at all times. And I'll tell you, when people of the world see you in affliction and see you being thankful anyway, that's, what, that's a, a witness to them. Now, of course, we should couple that with our words. We talked about it before. You know, if, if we just let our light shine, but we don't talk about Jesus, whose light are we shining, ours or Jesus's? We're shining ours. People would have thought, Kevin's just a good guy. Look at him. But he spoke up and said something for Jesus. That's really shining your light. But we're also, you know, we're talking about some hindrances to being thankful. What are some of the hindrances we talked about to being thankful? Daniel? Covetousness. Always wanting more. Which means you're not content with what you have, right? If you're not content with what you have, how can you possibly be thankful for what you have? What are some other hindrances we talked about? 
How about being well off? Being comfortable, apathy. And the people who are usually the most thankful in this world are people who live in the worst conditions. People who live in good conditions are like, eh, they're not thankful for just about anything. They take everything for granted. So we need to be careful of these things. And hopefully, if you ever feel tempted to be unthankful, you'll, maybe you'll be drawn back to that message, look over your notes and think about some of these things the devil will try to bring in your path to hinder you from being thankful at all times. Because that is the command from Scripture. Be thankful at all times. Okay, and today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 48. Now, some things we're going to touch on today that cultural Christianity here in America utterly reject. In fact, most of the visible church throughout the centuries has rejected these teachings. And I just I wonder sometimes if people just skip over this part of the Sermon on the Mount or what. I've, I've seen people twist these things. And I just, I just hope that as we read today and we study this, that you'll take God at His word and just obey what He says. So we should be doing. Okay, so let's start in verse 33 and read through verse 48. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you do not make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. You've heard that it said, uh, was said, you heard, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from, you do not turn away. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. Therefore you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Okay, so the first thing we're talking about here is, is oaths. And Jesus, in verse 33, repeats an Old Testament commandment. Uh, you find this in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus 19 and verse 12. And Deuteronomy 23, 23. Now sometimes when Jesus says, you've, you've heard a set of oaths, he says it all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Sometimes he's actually repeating what the Old Testament command was. Sometimes he's repeating what people have been taught. Not what the Old Testament ever said, but what people have been taught by the Pharisees and Sadducees teachers of that day. But in, in verse 33, he's repeating what the Old Testament taught. It had nothing to do with the Old Testament being corrupted to teach something else, but what actually the Old Testament taught. And he changes the command. He changes it here. So those who said of old, you can swear, you should, you should not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord. So in the Old Testament, uh, you're allowed to swear, but not swear for, falsely and perform your oath to the Lord. 
But then Jesus said, I say to you, do not swear. When? At all. At all. And I think at all means at all. I think you can get, you know, get any clearer than that. And then he goes on and talks about certain things. And if you read Adam Clark's commentary on this passage, he actually quotes from some Jewish leaders, Jewish rabbis, who will give quotations of people, of Jews actually swearing by these things. So Jesus is being specific here with the people who were actually swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by, the, uh, by God's throne, swearing by the altar. God, Jesus is coming specifically against what they actually were doing here in this passage. But we're not to swear at all. Now, practically speaking, what does that mean? Well, we're not talking about cuss words here. Uh, obviously, we shouldn't be cussing. You know, these cultural words that we hear that, that are uh, filthy words. But he's talking about uh, oaths here. So what does that mean? Well, think about some areas in life where you have to take an oath. Anyone name one? Married, okay, all right. When you become a citizen, okay. Right, right. Uh, now, in marriage, some people might call those, I mean, they wouldn't call it an oath. They call it vows sometimes. But it's really more of a covenant between God and men. Um, and, of course, you, you say something beforehand. Uh, but in me saying, to death do us part to my wife, it's let my yes be yes and my no be no. Uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going beyond that. Uh, but I'm simply just repeating words that are meaningful to the situation. Uh, but oaths to the Lord. Public office. What about public office? In politics? Police officers? President. President. What's that? Mi lawyers, military personnel. Right? So we're talking about oaths here. So God is, is, Jesus is forbidding here to swear at all, but let your yes be yes, your no be no. Now I'm going to, as we go through this today, I want to read to you some quotes from the early church fathers on what the early church believed concerning these verses, and they were universal across the board in these verses. Um, now, some people who would who would bring up certain scriptures in the New Testament, uh, for example, uh, to come against this interpretation of verse 34, Matthew chapter 27, and verse 63. This is Jesus uh, before uh, before. Um, the Pharisees, I'm sorry, Matthew 26, and six, verse 63. Matthew 26, verse 63 and 64. And this is where the, uh, the high priest is, is you know, basically interrogating Jesus, and he's not responding. And then in verse 63, it says, But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God, Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, it is as, it, as you said, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, people would use this as, as proof that when Jesus says, do not swear at all, he's not including swearing before a court or before judges. I don't think you say, because Jesus didn't say, I swear. He didn't submit himself to an oath. The, the, the priest tried to put him under an oath, and all he said is, as you, say, as you said, I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. Uh, so I, I don't think that's a very good uh, text to come against the, the interpretation of not swearing at all, including courtroom systems. And then uh, the only other text I've seen them use from the New Testament regarding this issue is uh, there's several times where Paul, at the beginning of his epistles, will say, I call God as my witness. 
that I pray for you continually. And you see this in Romans chapter 1, verse 9. You see it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23. And let's just look at let's look at Romans 1 9, just to give you an idea what I'm talking about here. Romans 1 9 says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, and that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. That's a that's a far cry, calling God as your witness. It's a far cry from saying, I swear, or uh, making an oath to something. Swearing allegiance to something. Uh, same thing happened in 2 Corinthians 1.23. Paul says something very similar here. Uh, Moreover, I call God as witness against my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. So he's calling God as a witness again. There's another thing similar in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 8. Something very similar said there. So people will use these texts to try to try to downplay what Jesus is saying here in verse 34, that he doesn't mean universally at all. He only means, you know, in common communication here. But the problem with that is, is when Jesus gives examples after this, he's not talking about just before the judge. He's talking about it all times. I mean, look at the things they're doing here. By earth, uh, swearing by earth, swearing by Jerusalem, swearing by uh, uh, the throne of, uh, by God's throne, heaven. Uh, he's giving examples here, and he's trying to make it all inclusive as to when you should swear, and it means at all. And James 5.12, uh, if you were with us during our study in James, I think only the McGlone family that was here, that's here now was with us for that. Uh, but James oftentimes quotes from the Sermon on the Mount, and in James 5.12, of course, James was the half-brother of Jesus. And James 5.12 says, but, all, but above all, my brethren, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, lest you fall to judgment. And that word judgment could also mean hypocrisy there. So, James is repeating what Jesus said. The same thing again. Do not swear at all. And I'm going to read to you some things that the early church said about regarding this, regarding public office, and regarding oaths. So you can kind of get an idea of what they believed. And they were, they were, all, they were in agreement with this, on this issue, across the board. Now, the early church father's writings does not mean, this is, their writings isn't inspired. Okay? must test at their writings as well against the Scripture. But at their interpretation of Scripture, them being right after the apostles, I think we need to give some kind of credence to that. Okay, um, And there were some people in the Bible who were in public office. Can you name some of those people? In public office in the Bible? In the Old Testament. Specific, specific. What was that? The kings. the kings, okay. But I'm talking about secular office here. That was obviously a theocracy. But what about Joseph? Public office, right? About Daniel, public office. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna I'm gonna read through and 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 Tertullian here, who's writing about 200 A.D. is is gonna talk about them, and he's gonna talk about um, how there can be an exception for someone serving public office based on certain conditions. And let's let's read what he says here. For there, there is the example of both Joseph and Daniel, who kept clean from idolatry, and yet administered both dignity and power in Egypt and Babylonia. Let us suppose that it is possible for anyone to succeed in operating under the mere name of the office, in whatever office. Let us also suppose the following. He neither sacrifices nor lends his authority to sacrifices. He does not farm out sacrificial victims. He does not assign to others the care of the temples. He does not look after their tributes. He does not give spectacles at his own or in a public expense, nor preside over them. He makes no proclamation or edict for any pagan festivals. He does not even take oaths. 
Furthermore, he does not sit in judgment on anyone's life or character, for you might allow his judging about money. He neither condemns nor indicts. He chains no one. He neither imprisons nor tortures anyone. Now, it, is it believable that all this is possible? So Tertullian is saying, well, listen, someone can be in public office if he can escape all of these corruptions in the process. That's the same thing I would say. But let's face it. What, pub, what, what a public servant, public politician have we ever known that hasn't had some corruption in them? And when you become involved in politics, it tries to corrupt you to the core. So, you know, back in those days, they were involved in sacrificing to idols, having people sacrifice to idols, uh, public uh, presiding over people who would be put to death, which we'll get to that here in a few minutes, uh, chains no one, imprisons no one, condemns or indicts no one, tortures no one, imprisons no one. If such a person can escape all of these things, then sure, he can be public office. And it, notice he said in there, takes no oaths. Because people who are Christians, what kingdom are they a part of? The kingdom of heaven. Now, if someone takes an oath to the kingdoms of this world, what fellowship does light have with darkness? And in what sense, then, are we aliens and strangers in this place? If we're taking allegiance and oath to a kingdom of this world. Now, of course, we reside in the kingdoms of this world. But we're not to be of the kingdoms of this world. And I think it's very obvious to me that Jesus is coming and swearing at all. He's literally going deeper with the command. He's taking the other command away from the Old Testament, which he quotes, basically. You can look back at Deuteronomy and Leviticus for yourself. But he's not, he's not coming against a bad teaching that someone corrupted the teaching of the Old Testament. He's coming against the actual teaching of the Old Testament, saying you must, you must not swear at all. Let's read something else Tertullian said. He said, um, Shall he apply the chain, the prison, the torture, and the punishment? He who is not the avenger even of his own wrongs? So Tertullian is saying here, if you're not, you can't even avenge your own wrongs. What right do you have to take public office and to avenge other people's wrongs? When you're to have no part in that. And then another time, Origen writing around 248 A.D., he's quoting a pagan author first, named Celsus, who says, Take office in the government of the country if that is necessary for the maintenance of the laws and the support of religion. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? This is what Celsus said to, to the Christians. He urges them to take office in the government of the country if that is necessary for the maintenance of the laws and the support of religion. That sounds like the religious right in America, to a T. Get involved in politics so you can keep our laws intact. So religion can be free still. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter running for office and keeping up the freedom of speech and freedom of religion in the, the Empire of Rome? I mean, there's, there's, there's people who have good intentions maybe, but they're, they're way off. How is this nation going to be changed? Through laws? Rather than we make laws, people break them. No, through them obeying the gospel and their hearts being changed, and then America will change naturally, like it's supposed to. Not through laws, not through politics. 
And then, and then of course, origin responds with this. However, we recognize in each state the existence of another national organization that was founded by the word of God. And we exhort those who are mighty in word and of blameless life to rule over churches. It is not for the purpose of escaping public duties that the Christian, Christians decline public offices. Rather, it is so they may reserve themselves for a more divine and necessary service in the church of God for the salvation of men. And I, I would encourage you guys, to, everyone, to get, one of the, get a copy of this or borrow from someone else called A Dictionary of Early, of Early Christian Beliefs. And uh, I looked on Amazon.com this morning. You can get a copy of this, new copy, for about 13 bucks plus shipping. Good deal. I think I got mine for 30 bucks, so it's a good deal. And the, 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 uh, the section I'm looking under now, this, this categorizes all the quotes. It's under the section Public Office. The quote I just read you can find underneath there. Okay, so those are some quotes from Public Office. Now let's look at some quotes about oaths here. And let's see what I have to say about, here about this. This is Justin Martyr writing about 150 A.D. And with regard to our not swearing at all and always speaking the truth, he commanded as follows, swear not at all. Pretty straightforward. And then Irenaeus or Irenaeus, depending on how you, who you talk to and how you pronounce it, he commanded them not only not to swear falsely, but not even to swear at all. You see, the first part Jesus quotes here in John 5, he says, quotes the Old Testament, do not swear falsely. It's the Old Testament, do not swear falsely. But he takes it further and says, do not swear at all. And I really don't think it can get any clearer than that. And uh, people might even bring up the, the oath, I think, that, or the, the vow that the Apostle Paul took in the book of Acts when, he, when uh, people were accusing him of coming against the Jewish law and to show the Jews that he wasn't coming against the Jewish law, but it was only for Gentiles not to obey those things. Uh, he, took, he took a vow with some young man. I think he had his head shaved, if I remember properly. Uh, but I don't think any of these things... Uh, reject the fact that what Jesus is teaching here, what James 5.12 teaches, and uh, again, what the early church taught, what they believed on these issues. But you can study that some more for yourself, and look into it for yourself, and make your own decisions on that. Uh, but if I were ever to go, remember when me and John, were, we, when I, I got arrested in Fayetteville for preaching on a, on a public property, we we're going to have to go to court. And I, I have to tell my, my lawyer, so listen, I, I'm not going to swear on the Bible. Uh, God forbid I swear on the book that tells me not to swear at all. That kind of be hypocritical. And he was kind of surprised at that, taken aback by that. But, you know, even in court, they allow you to let your yes be yes and no be no. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. And let me just say one more thing here about this regarding uh, military service here. And, uh, well, you know what? Let me say it to the last part, because that's going to be involved in the last part we get to here in a minute. Okay, so let, let your SBS and your nobody know. Let me, let me just ask you a question here. Now, when I was reading this last night, um, I've watched a lot of movies in my life, and I, I thought back to this movie, The Princess Bride. You guys ever seen that movie before? I always thought the movie was kind of funny, but uh, this is one part, Inigo Montoya. Okay? And uh, the guy in the black mask is climbing up the cliff, and he has no rope now. And Nigo Montoya offers to help me. He said, I'll let the rope down. He, he said, uh, he said uh, sorry, I, I know too many Spaniards. He wouldn't trust them just by letting his yes be yes and no be no. And then he swore on this and he swore on that. And he swore on his father's grave. And then he was willing to accept it. And you see what happens here. It's when you start swearing to people, I promise, let's pinky swear, you know, all the other things people do. I did when I was a kid too. You know, they, your regular word of yes and no, it isn't trustworthy to them. 
See, developing a, a habit of people not trusting your regular yes and no. That's why Jesus said it's of the evil one. You shouldn't have to say, I swear by this, I swear by that. Oh, let's do a, let's do a blood swear. Cut your, cut your finger, cut my finger, and we'll rub together and we swear on that. I did that when I was a kid, too. But you don't need to do those things. You should be so trustworthy. Your character should be so strong and so high that people just let your yes be yes and nobody know and they trust you at your word. They trust you at your word. That's why going beyond that is of the evil one because now you're saying, you're actually agreeing with that people. Yeah, my yes and, and no, not good enough. So every other time when you're just not swearing, can I really trust you? Do you I mean, should we trust you if you have to swear to get me to trust you? You're basically telling me I'm a liar the rest of the time. Or the chance I could be a liar the rest of the time. And if, you, and if someone isn't telling you the truth, I mean, how can you ever have a relationship with them even? Because you don't even know what they're saying is true. There's no trust, there is no relationship. So I think we need to take Jesus at his word here, take this literally, and this is yes, BS, no, be no, do not swear at all. Heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Old Testament law once again. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay, so not to resist. Now, for some reason, people look at this verse right here, and they think for some reason that they're allowed to defend themselves. That violence is allowed in self-defense. Now tell me how you read that into that verse. Not to resist. That goes beyond fighting back. That says, if someone tries to punch you, you don't even try to resist them. You're not even using self-defense, wing chain, whatever they call it, and trying to disarm the person. Wing Chun. You're not even trying to not harm them and try to not get them not to harm you. I think it was on Facebook, this guy said you need to you know, learn some self-defense classes. Not so you can harm them, but so you can stop them from harming you. Well, how does that fall into not resist? See, you know, the background of this position of self-defense is this, a lack of trust in God. Because God has the power of life and death. And what did Jesus say to Pilate? And he said, I have the power to kill you. He said, the only power you have has been given to you by my Father. So if someone comes to me in the open area and threatens to beat me, I say, listen, man, I'm not scared of you. Whatever you do to me, I can handle with God's strength. And you can only do to me what God allows you to do to me. So I don't understand how people can read self-defense into this. Who are slaps in the right cheek, turn the other. How is that self-defense? How is that defending yourself? Did Jesus defend himself when he was punched and his beard was ripped out? And a crown of thorns put on his head? And he spit upon and mocked and whipped and punched? So why don't we follow our, our Savior's footsteps? Not in patriotism America's footsteps. Who teaches these things? You know, and the foundation of this, this issue goes all the way back to Augustine's time. So before then, the Christians were the persecuted ones. But then all of a sudden, the Christians, the Christians got the upper hand. They weren't Persecution of Christianity was outlawed, and now they began to persecute people. That sounds more like Islam than it does like Christianity to me. 
And that was brought to America through Calvinism and Puritans. It brought it to America, and now all of a sudden we think, all, almost all Americans think this. Even professing Christian Americans think this. I don't know how they get that out of that. In Matthew 26, in verse 51, Jesus is arrested here. You all know this story. Matthew 26, 51. And suddenly one of those who were with Jesus, we know it's Peter from the other Gospels, stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, Way to go, Peter. Keep fighting. Defend me and defend yourself. Is that what he said? He didn't say that? Oh, very good, Malachi. Put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Perish by the sword. You know what really agrees me about this whole issue is that I can imagine Christians from America and Christians in another country going to war against each other and killing each other. Killing each other. A Christian against a Christian. Or, how about even, this is probably even worse, a Christian killing an unbeliever. Sending them straight into a Christless eternity. Simply because they want to preserve their own life. He who wants to save his life will what? Is your life your own? Who is it belong to? Who is it bought by? By what? His precious blood. Your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And you're to do what he tells you to do. Not resist an evil person. Strike on the right. Oh, here, on the left. Not try to block it. Not try to stop them. Not try to fight back. Not try to get them in a submissive hold so you can hold them until the police comes. Not try to barge on through because they're in your way. But follow in Jesus' footsteps. Yeah, that is wicked. Kill them all, let God sort them out. That's wicked. In John 18, speaking of the situation I was just talking about, this is just talking to Pilate here in verse 36. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. Would fight. So that I should not be delivered to the Jews, but now my kingdom is not from here. So if Jesus' kingdom were from this world, his people would fight. His servants would fight. So if you're fighting, which kingdom do you belong to? Here. Very good, Malachi. Here. If you belong to Jesus' kingdom, what are you doing? Are you fighting? No, you're laying down your life. The exact opposite. How Christianity ever got this backwards, I don't know. But it doesn't mean we're not in the battle at all. But we know from 2 Corinthians 10.4 For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. You want a real mighty weapon? Here's the weapons that God gives you. 
prayer, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the the belt of truth, and the shoes of the gospel. Which you take me to everywhere you go. That's that's the weapons of our warfare. Not the weapons of swords and guns and bombs and kung fu and jujitsu. Whatever it may be. He'll on to say, if anyone wants you to wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Now oftentimes in the open air, I'll have a a sinner paraphrase this and twist it and they ask me for my jacket. And, and they think because they asked for my jacket, I should just give it to them. Well, I think we need to use wisdom, of course, in situations. If, if someone just asks just to mock, if someone really needs a jacket, I'll give it to them. If someone's just doing it just to mock, just to prove a point, I'm not going to give in to their mockery. Don't be foolish. But if someone wants to sue you, of course you should you should meet them on the way and try to settle it outside of court. Um, but what Jesus is saying here is that if someone's trying to take something from you, show them that these things don't really belong to you anyway, and that's your heart an issue. Listen, these are just worldly possessions. You can have it. Go ahead. You want to sue me and take my uh, take my cloak, take my tunic? Here, here's my cloak too. You can have it. And you know how much that'll impact the person too. To try and do evil to you, and what do you do to them? You do good to them. Not try and do evil back. Not try and do a counter lawsuit once you win the lawsuit. That'll make a big impact on them. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. Now, when it comes to this borrowing issue, um, I think we once again we need wisdom. First Timothy five eight says, "If you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever." So I don't think Jesus is saying here if you you know if if someone wants to borrow, you know, all the money you have, and then you can't provide for your family anymore. You shouldn't be doing that. So we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture here. Uh, let, me, for, let me just read First Timothy five eight so I don't chop it up too much here. It says. Um, if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, I was seeing the wisdom in this. And like, there's, there's times where I've been on the streets and, and homeless people come to me. They say, can I have some money? I don't just give it to them just to give it to them. I'll ask them what they're going to use it for. And if I don't think I can trust them, I may give them something to eat. And witness to them along the way and while they're eating. But it'd be, it'd be foolish to give money to a person who's on drugs or to use it for alcohol. You're only enabling them in their sin. Um, you know, if you have a family member who's hooked on drugs and they can't find a place to live because they're spending all their money on drugs, would it be fo- foolish or wise for you to give them a place to live and to give them money? Foolish. You're enabling them in their sin. But you should do what you can to help them overcome that sin, of course. Uh, but it's, it's talk, obviously it's talking about love here. And if you were to if you were to go to, uh, I won't look at this now, but Luke chapter six verses twenty seven through thirty six, uh, you'd see for yourself it goes even further with this, and it says those who borrow from you do not ask for it to re- them to pay you back. So, when it comes to giving people money, 
our heart should be this. I'm not expecting anything in return. I'm being generous from my heart. I'm blessing you, and I'm not expecting the blessing in return. Now, of course, if a brother in Christ is who you're, you're giving this money to as a loan, and he says he's going to pay you back, he's letting his yes be yes and his no be no, obviously there's some expectation there because he's a brother in Christ, he's not a liar, his yes be yes and his no be no. When it comes to giving people things or blessing them or being generous towards them, we shouldn't think of it, well, I got this check here, now I'm waiting for his check back. I'm waiting for him to make up for what I did for him or did for her. Not the way it works. Be generous, not expecting anything in return. And that's what I think uh, God's heart is in the whole situation. If you look at Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. In verse 43 it says, You've heard that it was said, uh, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now the first part is in the Old Testament, love your neighbor. The second part is not in the Old Testament, hate your enemy. That's something, of course, Jesus is coming against here that has been taught somehow. (coughs) Excuse me. So this time, Jesus is coming against something that was taught to them. It was a warping of the Old Testament teaching. And this is why when Jesus does things like the... uh, the Samaritan, the story of the Samaritan. We call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Of course, they never calls him a good person inside that. We just kind of put that on top of there because of what he did. But that's why Jesus is using Samaritan there because he's trying to prove to them that these people who the Jews hated, that he was actually the one who loved his neighbor like he was supposed to. Well, who's my neighbor? Everyone's your neighbor. So you should love everyone, including your enemies. So Jesus comes against this teaching by saying, But I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So, loving your enemies. Loving your enemies mean... <coughs> and kill them? Is loving your enemies going... <sighs> anti-tank missile? Is that loving your enemies? Is loving your enemies dropping a tonk bomb on them? loving your enemies? Sure isn't. Definitely not blessing those who curse you. It's definitely not uh, doing good to those who hate you. Sure isn't. Or pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. There's times people bring up this verse and, and you know, maybe preaching on hell or rebuking somebody because of the way they're acting or their sin. And they think that that automatically means you're being unloving. No, preaching about hell and rebuking someone is loving. Of course, rebuke must be done with the right heart. In love for the person. In the pure heart, in your own heart for them. Not rebuking just to rebuke because you don't like what they're doing. Or being arrogant about it. But preaching about hell and rebuking someone is loving. So it doesn't just mean say good things to them. Like, bless those who curse you. Well, if they curse you, you say, God bless you. That is blessing them, but you could preach on hell back to them. You can tell them they're on their way to hell. You can rebuke them for their, their wickedness. That's love too. That is also a blessing to them, whether they think it is or not. Because you're sharing the truth with them. What they need to hear. Pray for those. Who's, how, you know, how could you pray for someone? Think about it. How could you pray for someone and kill them? How could you pray for someone and sin against them at the same time? I have a hard time doing that. My prayers would be very sincere, that's for sure. Very good, Malachi. 
that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Four. And who's the example in this situation? He gives the example. The example is the Father. Look at the way the Father treats his enemies. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and says, rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The world loves people who love them. We need to be above and beyond what the world is and what the world does by loving those who don't love us. And then we'll be called sons of your Father in heaven. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do, do so. Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So perfect in what way? Perfect in love. Which is the fulfillment of the law. Loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. In Luke's account of this, Luke 6.36, he had to be merciful. Which is also loving. To those who don't deserve mercy. Which is all of us. None of us deserve mercy from God. Okay, let's look at a couple of different things one more time from the Lord Church Fathers here. Uh, first thing I want to look at is, is war and their opposition to war. Uh, Justin Martyr, in writing about 160 AD, says, We who formerly murdered one another now refrain from making war even upon our enemies. That's Justin Martyr, about 160 AD. Once again, Justin Martyr, he says, We used to be filled with war, mutual slaughter, and every kind of wickedness. However, now all of us have, throughout the whole earth, changed our warlike weapons. We have changed our swords into plowshares, and our spears into farming implements. Which is a, basically a quote from Isaiah uh, chapter 2. Okay? Uh, Clement of Alexander, about 195 AD, says this, An enemy must be aided so that he may not continue as an enemy. For by help, good feeling is co compacted and enmity dissolved. There's really wisdom in that because, let's take for example, someone wants to hurt me. And my first reaction is to take their gun from them or hurt them first. Is that going to provoke them to stop hurting me? It's going to make them want to hurt me even more. It's going to rile them up, get them excited, and they're going to fight even harder to hurt me. But if I love them in return, That'll make them like soften their heart and make them put down their weapons. That's what Clement is saying here. Tertullian said in 197 AD, he said, God puts his prohibition on every sort of man, killing by that one exclusive commandment, you shall not kill. Let me read it again. God puts his prohibition on every sort of man, killing by that one inclusive commandment, you shall not kill. Shall not kill. And, um, Here's the issue that they had in the early church. There were times when people would get, become Christians, but they already were in the military. Well, now what do you do? Of course, the first option is to try to get out. And in our modern American military, there's a uh, clause... What's it called, John? Yeah, I'm drawing a blank, too. It's a way you can get out with conscientious objector. There you go. That's thank you, Kevin. And uh, there's people who get out with that. There's a guy, there's a couple who wrote a book on this uh, called "A Change of Allegiance." 
You can get this book on earlychurch.com. The guy who wrote, uh, did this, compiled this dictionary, he has it on his website. And they were, well, John, why don't you tell us just a s- summary real quick about them? Well, they were a military couple stationed in Germany, I believe, who were really the one uh, on the hearts of them. And uh, they began to search out the Bible and realize that they, they couldn't do that anymore. They had to make a choice between staying in the military or being a Christian. They decided they wanted to be a Christian and follow Christ. And uh, that's what they did. Year-long process. They were both officers, which is a higher grade than enlisted. Right. They were both officers. Jim Josh called the lieutenant. The other was a captain. Right. And they uh, they went through this conscience objector uh, process, and at the end, the I guess, I guess the colonel that did their their boards uh, told them, you know, I'm a Christian, but I I understand what you're doing, and I can't do it. Very compelling story, very interesting story. And that book really helped to solidify my view about this. Right. I highly recommend it. I was going to buy a case of it. Right. 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 Right and find someone already occupied with military service, their case is different. For example, there is the instance of those whom John the Baptist received for baptism, and for those most faithful centurions, I mean the centurion who Christ approved, the centurion who Peter instructed Cornelius. At the same time, when a man has become a believer and faith has been sealed, there must be either an immediate abandonment of the military office, which has been the course of many, or else sorts of, all sorts of quibbling will have to be resorted to in order to avoid offending God. And such equipment is not allowed even outside of military service. So he's saying, you need to abandon the military service or don't kill people. And imagine what kind of problems you're going to have. I've talked to lots of military people about these issues. So I've, somehow I've always been around a military base, it seems like. And when I teach, sp- speak to them in open air, I used to hold to the just war position. And I would tell them, they said, well, I've, I've killed people and they had this on their car. So listen, you, you did it in military service, not a big deal. And they said, yes, it is. And their conscience wouldn't let them get over it. Praise God, because I was telling them the wrong thing about five years ago. And uh, But if you were to tell them that, yes, you're right, you shouldn't be killing people, now they still have a problem, because now they have to deal with this. But they've been dealing with all along. This thing is on their heart, in their mind. They've actually taken another person's life. And so they, they have a decision to make. And I can continue taking people's lives. Or, might give up my military service. And one guy at EKU one time, Eastern Kentucky University, I think he was a specialist. He, it was a very calm conversation. I said to him, I said, he said, listen, you need to love God more than you love your country. He said, they said that's where you got it wrong. That's where you got it wrong. And uh, he wasn't willing to do that. He thought, he, I said, you need to love God more than your family. He said, well, I'm going to protect my family. Well, you need to love God more than your family. Above everything. And too many people in America who call them Christians are too much of a patriot. And it's, it's going to be a downfall for many of them. And then we have this issue of uh, non-resistance. Uh, Justin Martyr in 160 AD says, We will not ask you to punish our accusers, 
Their present wickedness is sufficient punishment. So even when people do things wrong, he doesn't ask them to punish them because their present wickedness is going to be punished enough for them in the end. That was just a martyr. Athenagoras said, We have learned not to return blow for blow, nor to go to law with those who plunder and rob us. Not only that, but to those who strike us on one side of the face, we learned to offer the other side also. Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, he commanded his followers not only not to strike others, but even when themselves are struck, to present the other cheek. He commanded them not only not to injure their neighbors, nor to do them any evil, but also when they are dealt with wickedly, to be, to be long-suffering with them. And again, Origen is responding to this Celsus guy who's a pagan critic, who talked to, tried to get Christians to join political forces to uphold the laws of land and religious freedom. And he's quoting Celsus, the critic, who says, They also have a teaching to this effect, that we should not avenge ourselves on one who injures us. Or as Christ expresses it, whoever will strike you on the right on one cheek, turn the other to him also. Uh, Commodianus says, Do not willingly use force and do not return force when it is used against you. You know, I think a great example of, of these teachings from the Bible, besides the early church fathers I just read from, the early church, is uh, the group of people called the Quakers. Uh, George Fox. If you read George Fox's journals, I, I mean, it was great, man. It was just so edifying to me to read those journals. And uh, how he went from thing to thing, being in prison wrongly, and how he didn't uh, try to fight it, and he didn't uh, try to resist it, and he just went on and kept preaching. And he was in prison for a long time for unjust reasons, but he kept on uh, going. There's one more passage I'm going to read to you here. It's from Luke chapter 12, and verse 14. And we've read this passage many times, I think, in this fellowship, but I think this is a very important passage regarding the situation. Luke, four, uh, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves. Rather, give place for, to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will pay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As clear as clear can be. Now, what I want to do now, I want to address some potential objections that I've heard before and just kind of touch on these issues. Now, the first thing I want to touch on is what about a husband defending his own family, his wife and children? And as you're thinking about these things, maybe I'll just give you some time over next week or so to think about these things, that I, I propose these things to you. Tell me where in the Bible God commands men to protect his family with violent force against other people, against intruders. I want you to think about this. Okay? So you guys need to think about this this next week or so. 
for some of you, this can be the first time you maybe you've even third, thought about this. Um, from, my, from what I see in the Bible, the protector of us is God. We can bring up all the what-if, supposed situations we can. You know, what if someone breaks into your house and wants to rape your wife and children? You know, you do, there are all these bad situations that come up all of a sudden when these teachings are brought up. Uh, but God is our protector. And if God allows something to happen, come into our lives, should we step out of his known will for our lives, do not resist an evil man, or should we trust God and do what he tells us to do? Don't get me wrong, if someone broke into my house and wanted to harm my family, my first inclination, because the way I was raised, and the country I'm in, I'm going to stop them, physically, with force. The question is, do I have the authority from God to do that? That's the question we must ask ourselves. Now, here's some things I think we can do if that such a situation like that arises. One, you can preach and rebuke. Two, you can pray. Three, you can flee. Four, if it's me, I'm going to tell my family to flee and I'll remain. And he's going to have to kill me first. I lay down my life for my family. He'll have to kill me first. What's up? Flee means you run. You run away. F-L-E-E. -E, you flee. Good question. Okay. You run away. Flee persecution, the Bible says. Sometimes in the Bible, like Paul, he, he ran to persecution. That prophet came to him and bound his own hands with his own belt, I think it was, and he said, I'm going anyway. And it was God's will. But there was a thing I think we can do. You can even plead with the guy. Or whoever it is. I don't think we have any authority from God. And someone was, I've heard people say who, who believe in self-defense that, you know, how is it loving to your family to allow them to die? What's well, loving because I'm obeying God and setting an example for my family. And I'm not killing an unbeliever in front of them and sending him to hell right in front of them. That's how it's loving. And if God allows something to happen in my life, remember, they can only do, people can only do to you what God allows them to do. You know, there's many times when they tried to kill Jesus, remember? We talked about this when we talked about the atonement. And, and eventually, God took his hand of protection off the son, allowed him to beat him and bruise him and crucify him. And there, come, there could come a point in time, even though you're protected right now by the hand of God, God may lift his hand of protection and let people do things to you. But there's going to be a reason for that. Just like Job said, shall I not accept bad from the Lord as well? And then there's this issue of the Old Testament <clears throat> where we see God commanding Israelites to kill people. But the difference is this. God is giving a direct command to these people to do these things. So God's using Israel as a hand of justice upon these nations. As a hand of punishment and judgment upon these nations. I don't know of any nation any person that can say that in today's day and age. If they saw a, a, they were led by fire and by smoke. They heard the voice of God from the mountain. Moses came down, Ten Commandments written by the finger of God, with his face glowing at the word of veil on his face. None of us can say that. If you can say that, and God gives you a command to kill someone, you better do it. You better do it. 
But I seriously doubt in the New Testament, New Covenant times, as we're a part of the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, that God is going to give any kind of commands against his written will. I seriously doubt that. But if anyone says that and they really think God's told them, they'll have to stand before God and give an account for whether God really said that or not. Uh, so you better make sure if God tells you that. So there's some objections I hear. And then they also have the objections that, that were brought up by Tertullian in that quote about Cornelius, the centurion that Jesus met, the centurion that John the Baptist baptized. Um, they're, they're arguing from silence, though. They're trying to say just because they didn't tell them to stop their military service, that means they could continue in it or they were okay with it or approving of it. It doesn't say that either. So it's not an argument that can be used for either side. Jesus doesn't approve it, but he doesn't disapprove it either. So we must go to the scriptures that do speak about this issue and go to those. And I think Matthew 5 is clear on this. I don't think Jesus could... If, if Jesus wanted to say what I think he's saying, do not swear at all, how else would he say it? How else can he make it any clearer? If Jesus was trying to say, if he was trying to, if, if he's trying to commit this, commit this truth that, that we're not supposed to hurt people at all physically with violence, how else would he be clear with it besides what he has said? He couldn't be any clearer. So even this is a hard teaching that goes against cultural Christianity here in America. Patriotism America. People love their country. You know, God and country. You have the American flag. God bless America. All around America. We must love God more than we love our nation. Because we're pilgrims and strangers in this place. Aliens. We don't belong to this kingdom. Yes, we reside and we will obey the laws of this kingdom as long as they don't cause us to disobey the laws of God. But we're to be in our allegiance. I pledge my allegiance to God. Not to America. I don't belong to America. Soldiers don't give me my freedoms. God gives me my freedoms. And if God allows my freedoms to be taken away, I'll still preach. Because according to him, I have the freedom to preach and I better preach. Otherwise, I'm not a real Christian. That's what he's called me to do. Okay, I think that about covers everything I wanted to talk about when it comes to these objections. Um, Alright, does anyone have any, any questions? Objections or things they want to add. Okay. As Brother Kerrigan rightly said, that God is our protection. And uh, if I were to disobey Him and try and protect you, then you're not trusting God, you're trusting me. You're putting your trust in me. By, by, by my carnal worldly protection, which will fail you eventually. Eventually I'm going to die, and I say I would be able to But God, who uh, has promised his protection to you, no matter what happens to you, uh, if you trust him, obey him, then uh, he'll pull all his protection no matter what the circumstances. Yeah. So I would say, even if you're suffering, uh, if you're being persecuted,
foster your reputation, it might foster your job, it might foster your everything. Mm-hmm. You know, are you ready to do that? Because that's the way you need to, to pray and think and talk to the Lord about yourself. Right. Yeah, and, and and just to add to that, brother, um, you know, if you're if you're trusting in in man, like your, like your father said, like John said, you lack trust in God. You trust God, not man. And uh, let's say worst case scenario, let's say someone busted in my house. I decide to backslide and try to kill him. And I succeed. And the moment after I kill him, he shoots me and kills me. Or someone else runs on and shoots me and kills me. Now if what I'm teaching today is right, and I've killed another man, I've sinned, and now I've just died of my own sins. See how horrible that would be? Now you're sending another man to hell, and now you're sending yourself to hell because of your hatred in your heart towards that person. So God forbid we do that. And, um, you know, and behind this whole thing, this idea of how precious this life is. Is this life really that precious to you that you want to save your own life? I mean, I want to go. I want to go. I'm ready to go. This life means, I mean, I love my life, my wife, my children, my friends, my family. This life isn't precious to me. I gave it up long ago. I plan to keep it that way. But behind this whole idea of defend myself, defend my family, is how precious life is. This life in this world is not precious to me in that sense. And it shouldn't be. And the person who tries to defend themselves, they're playing God. Because only God has the right to take life, has the power over life and death. So in doing these things, you're playing God, you're showing where your heart is, you're trying to preserve your own life, because... If for Christians, death is lost a sting, right? So why should we try to preserve our life if death is lost a sting? So preservation of your own life, you're playing God, and you might send someone else to hell. So many reasons not to do this. We really need to consider these things. Don't let patriotic America influence our decisions and what the Word of God says. Because that, that's not the context of the original writings. They didn't have a patriotic Roman Empire where they had freedom of religion and freedom of speech and where Christians were politicians of religious right boycotting Lowe's and Home Depot because of their commercials on TV. Thanks for adding that, brother.
whole safety on defending our country comes from defending our families. It comes from that. Because if you have to defend your family, then it's right that it's in my home, my property, my county, my state, my country. That all comes from it. Yeah, defending the things of the world. It all, it all gets together in defending the world. You're defending things that are moth and rust will destroy. And you're killing things that will be eternal. Doesn't make much sense to me. So you're, de you're defending possessions, but you're killing people who will last forever. It's not a good idea. To the flag, yep. Me too. In school. Yep. Amen. What it leads to. I've actually heard, and you've probably heard people say that too, um, that God is so faithful to them, and even in their rebellion or their fighting allegiance to another kingdom, that they're going to save no matter what. They can take more from deep, mm. and they're going to save them. That's what it'll lead to. Yeah, that's what I think it'll lead to. Yeah. So, there's the aware of that. the same things that we can do. Of course, the laws of the land, for the most part right now, protect children from these kind of things. So screaming and asking for help, that'll help them too. And, um, you know, but hope as we pray and, and God works and he'll, he'll, he'll lead us and guide I, I've been reading through that, like I said, that Back to Jerusalem book, and, and there was a time when this husband, he was in China, Kamas China, got put in jail for 13 years, and he was considered a traitor to the state because he wouldn't register his church with, with the state. So they can control the church, and his wife and daughter, daughter maybe like a year old at that, two years old at that point in time, uh, 
if they had no way of providing for themselves, he was the sole provider of their family financially and, and materially for like crops and stuff like that. He was the one who planted the crops and reaped them. And they didn't know how to do that. And if someone from the church or anyone tried to help them, they get the same crime he had. We put in jail too. So they're left out by themselves all this time. And uh, they had to fend for themselves. But God provided for them. God took care of them. And I think what they saw through the whole thing is that God is my provider. Not my husband, but God. Of course, when the husband's not in jail, God provides through him and through the, the working effort of, of the, the couple. Uh, but I think what, what it goes, boils down to here, once again, is who are we trusting in? God and his word? You know, I, we need to trust God to protect us and our children, no matter what may happen. I mean, this thing's going on right now in America, man, that's really looking bad when it comes to protecting our children. And, um, you know, we must not get fearful and trust in the Lord. And uh, if he calls us to flee, then we'll flee. If he calls us to stay put, then we'll stay put. But everyone, including children, need to be ready. And we need to train them, too, to be ready. That's a good, that's a good question about the children. Right, right. We do all we can. To put, we're, we're in charge of raising our children. And do whatever we can to protect them and make sure they don't have these unnecessary influences and temptations in their life where things like this will happen. You know, if this state started going crazy and started taking children from Christians, uh, I'm pretty sure I'd probably flee. Find a cave somewhere if I had to. And live off of worms in a cave if I had to. You know, I, I'd rather do that than lose my children. They're precious to me. They're precious to God. There you go. I'll dig a hole in the ground. I'll dig for five days straight. I'll dig a hole in the ground and make a house out of that. And they eat the bugs and worms for the rest of my life. Yeah, John the Baptist, he ate locusts and honey. I mean, honey, you can get out with it, find a beehive, find a bee, and they're like, where's that bee going? They're following back to the hive, and you got some honey, and you got some locusts, you're good to go. You know? I'll find a way. I'll do whatever it takes. Even if I have to lay down my own life for my children to be safe, I'll do it. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, any any other uh, questions or comments or things anyone wants to add? I think that was John the Baptist. Yeah. Hey, he's talking about not taking more than you should take. Uh, I think that might be in the Gospel of John. Let's see here. Maybe not. Maybe it was in Luke or Mark. Okay, here it is. In John, Luke chapter 3. In verse, uh, let's see, verse 14, Luke 3:14. Like what the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. So, of course, people who, who believe you can be military and kill people and be Christian, they'll say, Look, he didn't, he didn't tell them to, to get out of the military. But it's just an argument from silence. He doesn't approve of it either. 
He doesn't say your military service is okay, you can still kill people. Doesn't say that. So it doesn't say either one. So you can't use an argument for either side. People try to use it as an argument for either side, and you can't do that. Not the way it works. So, but I, th I think I, you can't take this argument from silence and override Jesus' direct command. I, I don't know why people think they can do that. Because they come to the scripture with a bias, their own preconceived notions, and try to find it within the scriptures. When you have a direct command from God, and then you have an ex some writing about a historical situation of something that actually happened and doesn't say something that's against that command of God, you take the command of God over that. Over that silence. Well, he might have. Well, right. That's what I'm saying. It's from silence. We don't know everything that was said there. And uh, he, they might have been baptized, might not have been baptized. The, like we said in the early church, if you already were a soldier, you could be baptized as long as you were going to say, I'm going to try to get out or I'm not going to kill people anymore. You could be in it as long as you're not involved in corruption. Right. Right. So you're saying that what John is saying there, almost like saying get out, but I'm saying don't do it. Interesting. Martial arts or, or any kind of uh, warfare, the whole point is to intimidate the person to back down. Right. Or the force to back down. Yeah, that's a, I never thought about that. Maybe, I mean, he didn't say that, but being a soldier itself, being in the dress of a soldier is itself intimidating. So it maybe if you told them don't intimidate, they went about and said, well, I don't know if I can intimidate people anymore. I don't know if I can actually be a soldier and not intimidate people. So maybe they got out from that. If they're going to obey what John about to said. Because like you said, it's intimidating just to be a soldier. I mean, you see them, the Roman garrison walking down the road. You automatically think, fear. Yeah. So if, if they're not going to be a part of that, like John about to say, don't, don't intimidate people, then they're going to have to get out. Cornelius, yeah. Yes, he was a soldier. Yep. And then you have the one that Jesus the servant. Yes, right. servant. Right. 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 Exactly. All that's an argument from silence. And you look at the other church, the way they interpret these passages, they're right after the, the disciples. And they all universally interpret the same way. I mean, obviously Cornelius was, he was part of it. Right. Saved. Right. So being a part of the military itself does not mean you can't be saved. But doing what the military does is a general rule. And you can't be saved and do it at the same time. There's no way. So you might be saying from Scripture that it's possible to be in it and not be doing it. Right. And that's why... Right, and that's why Tertullian gave that exception clause. You're already in it, you can get saved, but you need to stop doing what those things do. 
They're not going to want you in. I mean, you're you're call you're like a band of brothers, and and if you go out to war and you're not going to protect your your fellow band of brother here, they're all going to hate you. You might they might actually shoot you. And that's one of the, one of the excuses I hear in the open air a lot of times. Why well, I, I got to protect my brother. I can't go to open air and not protect him. So you know now you're loving your brother more and you love God's commandments. And Jesus said, "You are my mother and my brother. You are my mother and brothers. Yes." Yeah, he's too concerned about his this brother and not concerned about the most important brother. Yeah. So it goes back to who your allegiance is to, who you pledge your allegiance to. So. All right. I guess we'll end there.